Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 11, The Rise of Assyria. Last episode, we focused on the Canaanite states in the aftermath of the Bronze Age collapse. This week, I wanted to focus on the former regional powerhouses and see how each confronted the challenges of the early 1st millennium BC. Let's start by looking at Egypt. After almost single-handedly acting as backstop to the entire Bronze Age collapse through Ramses III's legendary defeat of the Sea Peoples in the Nile Delta, victorious Egypt nevertheless found itself isolated from the Near East and with its borders quickly reduced to those of its foundation 2,000 years before. Weak and under-divided rule, Egyptians could only watch helplessly as their ancient society was threatened further by economic turbulence, worker unrest, and invasions by Libyans from the western desert. The death of Ramses XI in 1078 BC officially ended the 20th dynasty, but by then the unrivaled power and glory of the new kingdom already seemed very, very far away. In contrast with its more adaptable Canaanite contemporaries, battered Egypt retreated into itself, struggling mightily to maintain the illusion that the Bronze Age collapse represented nothing more than a temporary blip in the status quo. Egyptian pharaohs held on to their top-heavy palace structure and associated bureaucracy, as well as the ancient tradition of training court scribes to keep records in Egyptian hieroglyphics. In turning inward, the country missed out on many of the technological advancements adopted by its northern neighbors, including alphabetic scripts and iron weapons, and found itself behind the curve in subsequent developments. Before long, Egypt would fall to the status of a second or even third-rate power, unable to shape regional events or even defend its territory or ancient traditions against foreign invasion and influence. But we aren't quite there yet. At the dawn of what is called the Third Intermediate Period, Egypt was economically bankrupt with rule divided between a weak 21st dynasty of pharaohs centered at Pi Ramesses on the Nile Delta and a rival ruling dynasty of powerful high priests of Amun at Karnak in Thebes. While nominally paying allegiance to the kings of the delta, the high priests exercised effective control over the vast amount of Egyptian temple lands, ships, factories, and much else of value in the country, 
making them an independent power unto themselves. The priests also implemented a systematic mining of the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings to fortify their treasury, another reflection of the desperate necessities of the time. Upon the death of Ramesses XI, rule of Egypt was effectively split between Smendes, who quickly crowned himself Smendes I and married a daughter of Ramesses XI for good measure, and the high priest Herihor. Under Smendes I, the capital of Lower Egypt was moved from Pyramesses to Tanis, where it would remain under his 21st dynasty successors. Relations between the two power centers remained amicable. A later revolt against the high priest Menkepere in Thebes was apparently suppressed by the forces of Smendes I, then in his 25th regional year, who exiled the leaders of the rebellion to the western desert. The high priests struck a delicate balance in characterizing their rule. They used royal cartouches for their names, but reckoned time using the ruling years of the 21st dynasty pharaohs. The age-old custom of intermarriage also served to bind together the ruling families of north and south, and led to several descendants of high priests becoming 21st dynasty rulers in the delta. As an example, when Smendes I finally passed away in 1052 BC, a son of Herihor named Amenemnisu succeeded him to the throne in Tanis. Despite such factors, a unification of the two power centers remained elusive. Amenemnisu was succeeded by Susenes I, son of the high priest Penedjem I of Thebes. His long rule of 46 years is best known for building the enclosure walls and central structure of the Great Temple at Tanis, which was dedicated to the Theban triad of Amun, Mut, and Khonsu. The brief rule of his son and heir, Amenemope, was followed by a fairly major development, the ascension of the first Libyan pharaoh to the throne of Egypt. Osorkon the Elder was the son of Sheshonk, the great chief of the Ma, or Meshwesh, a Libyan tribe who had attacked Egypt in coordination with the first wave of sea peoples back during the reign of Merneptah. Exactly how Osorkon came to power in 992 BC is unclear, but Libyan incursions and settlements in the Nile Delta had by now been going on for centuries is probably indicative of how far the Egyptians had strayed from their insular and conservative traditions, and how thoroughly the Libyans had infiltrated the region, that this once unthinkable change in Egyptian leadership was met with little opposition. After Osorakan, native Egyptian rule resumed under his successor Siamun. The rule of Osorakan and Siamun was contemporary with that of the biblical kings David and Solomon. In another stark break with Egyptian custom, it was also at this time that Egyptian princesses were first offered to the rulers of neighboring lands and tribes in an effort to secure peace and security. This included the marriage of Siamun's daughter to King Solomon in order to seal an alliance between the two nations. According to the Bible, she joined some 500 other wives of Solomon, including members of the Moabite, Ammonite, Neo-Hittite, and Phoenician royal families. Per the biblical account, the first practical exercise of the new Egyptian-Israelite alliance was bringing Egyptian forces to bear against Israel's longtime foes, the Philistines, who had also been threatening Egypt's commercial ties with Phoenicia. 
Taking advantage of Philistine weakness, following King David's series of wars against their state, the pharaoh Siamun attacked and conquered the Philistine city of Gezer. Egypt then allowed Solomon to occupy Gezer, which was incorporated into ancient Israel. In addition to his diplomatic and military accomplishments, the pharaoh Siamun also initiated various construction projects at Tanis, Pyramazes, Heliopolis, and Memphis over his nearly 20-year rule. His successor, another native Egyptian pharaoh named Susenes II, apparently held the titles of both pharaoh and high priest of Amun concurrently, but what effect this had on the rival power centers is unknown, as is most everything else from his poorly documented 24-year rule. It would be left to the subsequent 22nd dynasty to complete the reunification of Egypt, with a novel twist. It would be accomplished under a line of Libyan pharaohs from the delta city of Bubastis. Sheshonk I, like his uncle Osorkon the Elder before him, was a powerful Libyan chief of the Ma or Meshwesh tribe, who had risen to the rank of commander-in-chief of the armies of Egypt. In 943 BC, he succeeded his father-in-law, Susenes II, to the throne of Egypt, and quickly fortified his claim by adopting all the traditional pharaonic titles. Sheshonk then moved to consolidate dynastic control over all of Egypt, mainly through the use of marriage arrangements and critical appointments. He installed one of his sons, Eoput, as both governor of Lower Egypt and high priest of Amun at Thebes. A second, Jebptah of Ankh, as third prophet of Amun, and a third, Nimlot, as military commander of Heracleopolis, an important garrison used to exert control over nearby Thebes. Sheshonk's efforts at consolidation and reunification would bear ample fruit, and the Bubastite dynasty he founded would rule Egypt for the next 200 years. With the internal security of his regime established, Sheshonk began to turn his attention to Egypt's former Near Eastern possessions. In 930 BC, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, under Rehoboam and Jeroboam I respectively, were in conflict, and the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt had dissolved with the passing of both Solomon and Siamun. In the 18th year of his reign, Sheshonk, likely the biblical Shishak, led the armies of Egypt into Canaan. According to the biblical account, after laying siege to Jerusalem and Judah, Sheshonk was bought off by being offered all of Solomon's treasures, with the only exception being the Ark of the Covenant. Unless you believe the Indiana Jones version, in which case the Egyptians took that too, and buried it at Tanis, along with a cool Anubis statue and a bunch of snakes. Sheshonk next invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and drove Jeroboam I, a former protege of the pharaohs, into exile in Jordan. All that remained was to erect a victory stele at the farthest point of his conquest, the ancient city of Megiddo, scene of Tuthmosis III's victory of 500 years before, and return home in triumph. Egypt had not seen such a thoroughly successful campaign since the days of Ramesses III and his battles against the Sea Peoples, and the victory further consolidated the strength of the Bubastite dynasty. Inscriptions in the temples of Amun at Alhiba and Karnak, along with related archaeological discoveries, including the Megiddo victory stele, corroborate Sheshonk's victories over numerous cities in Canaan and Syria at this time, 
with the notable exception of Jerusalem, which is not referenced outside of the biblical account. Following Sheshonk's return to Egypt, Rehoboam retained kingship over Judah, now an Egyptian vassal state, and Jeroboam returned from exile to reclaim the throne of Israel. The two kingdoms spent much of the next decade engaged in border skirmishes with one another, with neither power claiming the upper hand. When Rehoboam died in 916 BC, his son and heir Abijah made a dedicated effort to reunite the two kingdoms through force. Though not entirely successful, his armies effectively crippled Israel militarily and managed to seize several important border towns, including Bethel, Jeshana, and Ephron. Upon Abijah's death in 913 BC, rule of Judah passed to his son Asa, a strict Yahweh traditionalist. The Bible records an attack by, or at least from, Egypt in the 10th year of his reign. This attack, uncorroborated by other sources, was supposedly launched by an Egyptian-backed Ethiopian chieftain named Zera, who fielded a large army roughly matching Judah's forces. The armies of Judah emerged victorious from the battle, driving the enemy back to the coastal plain. Meanwhile, per the biblical account, a general named Basha had killed Jeroboam's son Nadab and the rest of Jeroboam's extended family for good measure to set himself up as unchallenged king of Israel. Conflict with Judah resumed, with Basha making an alliance with King Ben-Hadad I of Aram Damascus to secure his northern border, then fortifying the Israelite town of Ramah, just north of Jerusalem, in an effort to choke off Judah's trade. King Asa of Judah managed to outmaneuver him, bribing King Ben-Hadad to break his treaty with Israel and launch attacks against Israelite cities in the north. The tactic worked, and Basha was forced to withdraw Israelite forces from Ramah. The short rule of Basha's son and heir, Elah, ended with his murder by the army, and the ensuing succession struggle finally ended in 880 BC with the ascension of the army general Omri to the throne of Israel. After decades of internal discord and external conflict, King Omri initiated both a stable ruling dynasty and a period of relative peace and even occasional cooperation with his southern neighbor, though both kingdoms continued to fortify themselves against one another. Under Omri, the capital of Israel was moved from Shechem, first to Tirzah, and then to Samaria, where it would remain. Outside of biblical sources, Omri's name is found on a contemporary Moabite stele, as well as on the famous Black Obelisk of Assyria, and neighboring kingdoms apparently considered him to be the founder of the Kingdom of Israel, often referred to thereafter as the House of Omri. Upon Omri's death in 874 BC, the throne of Israel passed to his son, Ahab. Within a few years, Jehoshaphat also succeeded his father, Asa, as king of Judah. Both kings strove to maintain peaceful relations, with Jehoshaphat even marrying his son to Ahab's daughter. Relations with neighboring kingdoms were also fairly amicable during this period. Apparently, only Aram Damascus, under its new king Hadad Azer, continued to be viewed as a regional threat. Ahab himself married Jezebel, yes, that Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ithobaal, the Phoenician king of Tyre. The heirs of the Tyrian king Hiram had been overthrown back in 920 BC, and kingship of Tyre had been usurped by four brothers, each of whom ruled in succession. 
In 878 BC, Ithobaal, a former priest of Astarte, had murdered Phelles, the last of these brothers, and taken control of Tyre. Under his rule, Tyre expanded its power on the mainland, formally consolidating Sidon and Tyre into a single kingdom, and making all of Phoenicia its territory, as far north as Beirut and even a portion of Cyprus. Ithobaal also continued the expansion of Phoenician maritime trade and colonization initiated by his predecessors, a topic that we'll cover more fully in a later episode. By marrying Ithobal's daughter Jezebel, King Ahab intended to further secure both his power base and Israel's economic prosperity. On the flip side, this alliance also resulted in the penetration of Phoenician influence and religious ideas into Israel. This effort was spearheaded by Jezebel, who was, after all, the daughter of a priest of Astarte, and saw nothing wrong with giving royal support and patronage to the temples of Baal. These developments led to a backlash by Yahweh traditionalists, such as the prophet Elijah, against the house of Omri. Returning to Egypt, following his victories in Canaan, Sheshonk I embarked on a major building campaign in both Karnak and in his home city of Bubastis on the eastern Nile Delta. Upon his death in 922 BC, he was succeeded by his son and heir Osorkon I, who continued his father's policies and ruled Egypt into the early 9th century BC. Predeceased by his son and designated heir Sheshonk II, Osorkon was instead succeeded by Takalot I, son of one of his minor royal wives. Under Takalot I, no major monuments were constructed, and it appears that Egypt once again began to bifurcate into rival power centers, with his cousin Harsayese, high priest of Amun at Karnak, declaring himself king of both Upper Egypt and the western desert oases. When Takalot died in 872 BC, it was left to his son and successor, Osorkon II, to consolidate power again. Upon Harsayese's death in 860 BC, Osorkon II appointed one of his sons, Nimblot, as high priest of Amun at Karnak, and another son, Sheshonk, as high priest of Ptah at Memphis, thereby bringing the two major priesthoods of Egypt under his family's control. Once unity was restored, Osorkon II embarked upon another major building program, with construction taking place in Bubastis, Memphis, Tanis, Thebes, and Leontopolis. Now let's leave Egypt and Canaan for a bit and head over to the east to see how Babylonia and Assyria faced off against the brave new world of the first millennium BC. We left them both on pretty shaky ground. So shaky, in fact, that the two mortal enemies had even gasp, been forced into an alliance in an attempt to head off the massive waves of Aramean invasions in the mid-11th century BC. While this effort was largely a failure, the nature of the outcome varied in each region. In Babylonia, the Arameans remained mostly in the countryside, eventually settling along the Tigris River, and didn't really pursue any kind of political power or dominance within the cities. They were joined in the area by another powerful tribe, the Chaldeans, who began to settle along the lower Euphrates, severing Babylonian access to ancient southern trade routes. The Kassites, though no longer in power, remained a potent force, and of course the original Sumerian Akkadian peoples were still around, as were Elamite and Assyrian elements, and even recent Arab immigrants from the peninsula, 
In short, it all made for a very complicated and fairly volatile mix. And I doubt you'll be too surprised to hear it'll be a few centuries before anything resembling a coherent and powerful state would reemerge in Babylonia. In addition to ethnic disunity, the region was also kept weak by a major decline in agricultural production, product of the loss of hinterland to invading tribes, and the breakdown and loss of access to trade routes. The major cities of the region, though drastically reduced in both size and power, continued to preserve the ancient cultural, religious, and political traditions of Mesopotamia. But the lack of wealth meant that no new building could be undertaken, and even restoration and maintenance activities were extremely limited in scope. While the role of the Babylonian city god, Marduk, remained prominent in the kingdom, it was joined by the worship of his son, Nabu, the scribe of the gods and patron god of the city of Borsippa. So, get ready for the Nabu king names! In general, the centuries following the Bronze Age collapse were a period of violence and warfare between families, tribes, tribal groups, and cities throughout Babylonia, with an absence of strong ruling dynasties or significant accomplishments. Even written records, the very lifeblood of Babylonian culture, would not reemerge until the middle 8th century BC. To get into the details a bit, after the destruction of the Kassite ruling dynasty by the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser I back in 1082 BC, the native second dynasty of Isin had taken control of Babylonia. This dynasty ruled until 1026 BC, when pressures from the Aramaeans finally split the kingdom, with much of southern Babylonia breaking off to form the second Sealand dynasty under Kassite rule. In 1004 BC, the Sealand dynasty itself was overthrown by the rival Kassite Bazi dynasty. In 983 BC, rule passed to a king of Elamite descent, followed by a series of kings of uncertain affiliation. We're getting deep into Babylonian Dark Age territory here, and the documentation for rulers, activities, and successions is rapidly approaching nil. At the beginning of the 9th century BC, during the rule of the Babylonian kings Shamash Mudamik and his successor Nabu Shuma-Ukin I, the historical record firms up for a bit as a consequence of resumed Babylonian interaction with another major regional power. Yes, the one you've all been waiting for, a resurgent Neo-Assyria. After contending with, and eventually falling victim to, its own mid-11th century Aramean invasions, Assyria spent the better part of the next hundred years hunkered down in its core territories, ruled by one or another branch of a typically conniving royal family, some of whom made their bid for the Assyrian throne with Babylonian backing. In addition to the constant influx of Aramean settlers, Assyrian kings also had to deal with the threat of the newly formed Aramean kingdoms, whose armies occasionally attacked and seized Assyrian territory before being driven off. The Assyrian turnaround finally began in 935 BC, with the ascension of Ashur-dan II, son of Tiglath-Pileser II, to the throne of Assur. Ashurdan II embarked on a major program to rebuild the urban and agricultural infrastructure of the Assyrian heartland. This included establishing palaces and official buildings in all Assyrian provinces, repairing the road system constructed during the Middle Assyrian Empire, and providing plows throughout the countryside, which led to a major increase in grain production. 
It's also under Asher Dan's rule that the Assyrian historical record reemerges, still in the old Akkadian cuneiform style, implying, hey, something important is starting to happen again. We should probably write this down. It was a timely realization. The solid foundation laid by Asher Dan II would be built upon by his next four successors, under whose rule Assyria would rise to become the greatest power the world had ever known. In 911 BC, Adad Narari II, son of Asher Dan II, and considered the first true king of the Neo Assyrian period, took power in Assur. With the heartland of Assyria already secured by his father, Adad Narari II turned his gaze toward the lands of northern Syria, between the Tigris and Kabur rivers, that had been held by Assyria during the Middle Empire. As far as Adad Narari II was concerned, this was still Assyrian territory, and the fact that it was now entirely dominated by Aramaeans was somewhere between an inconvenience and an outrage. Either way, the Aramaeans would have to go. Reinitiating the ancient Assyrian tradition of yearly campaigning, Adad Narari II repeatedly led the armies of Assyria westward, securing devastating victories over any enemy forces unlucky enough to cross his path. In addition to the Aramaeans, and a few stray Hurrians, these enemies came to include a number of Neo-Hittite city-states that had formed after the fall of the Hittite Empire. The rulers of these city-states claimed descent from the great Hittite kings, and did their best to maintain Hittite cultural traditions, including speaking the Luwian Hittite language and writing in a form of Hittite hieroglyphics. Carchemish was one of the first Neo-Hittite kingdoms to emerge after the Bronze Age collapse. It was ruled by the heirs of a Hattusan prince and viceroy, and for a time controlled a vast region between the Euphrates and the Mediterranean. However, by the late 10th century BC, Carchemish had fragmented, and a number of smaller Neo-Hittite states had formed across southern Anatolia and northwestern Syria. Like their Egyptian counterparts, the Neo-Hittites did their level best to pretend they were still living in the good old days, building cities with citadels, palaces, and temples surrounded by massive defensive walls. There's evidence that Neo-Hittite art and architecture made a strong impression on the Neo-Assyrian kings, who consciously adopted the Neo-Hittite practice of decorating palaces extensively in stone, including the use of large animals flanking entrances and wall reliefs with inscriptions celebrating the king's accomplishments. Where their Egyptian counterparts used gold mines and tomb robbing to fund their post-collapse party, at least for a while, the Neo-Hittites used their control over important trade routes, mining areas, and passages over the Euphrates. But unlike Egypt, and more similar to their Phoenician neighbors, the Neo-Hittite kingdoms were enviously wealthy but militarily weak, making them a very appealing target for a resurgent Neo-Assyria. Luckily for both the Phoenicians and Neo-Hittites, Adad Narari II also had southern ambitions. After securing all territories up to the Kabur River, a major tributary of the Euphrates, Adad Narari II turned his armies south, where he faced off against the Babylonian kings Shamash Mudamik and Nabu Shuma Ukin I in separate Assyrian campaigns. While Shamash Mudamik was forced to cede several Babylonian fortresses along the middle Euphrates to the Assyrians, Nabu Shuma Ukin I succeeded in pushing their forces back northward to the Lesser Zab River. 
The military prowess of the latter Babylonian king earned Assyria's grudging respect, and relations between the two states became cordial in the aftermath of the conflict. In 891 BC, Tikulti-Ninurta II succeeded his father to the throne of Assur, its treasuries already swollen with wealth from the early Neo-Assyrian campaigns. Continuing in his father's footsteps, he consolidated recently won territories, while also campaigning eastward into the Zagros Mountains. There, Neo-Assyrian forces first encountered, and quickly subjugated, the Persians and the Medes, Ironic peoples who had recently migrated into the region. Maybe it's just me, but I suspect we may be hearing more about these Persians sometime down the line. After a relatively short reign of seven years, Tikulti Ninurta II was succeeded by his son, Ashur Nasirpal II. And now, as they say, things really got cooking. Under Ashurnasirpal II, Neo Assyrian forces first campaigned northward as far as Nairi, a loose confederation of tribal states in the Armenian highland near Lake Van, including the soon to be important kingdom of Urartu. They then turned westward to conquer the Aramaeans and Neo Hittites living between the Kabur and Euphrates rivers. To give a little insight into the Neo Assyrian way of war and conquest, Contrary to the standard picture, the Assyrian army seldom engaged in large battles in the open field. Their real weapon, one that they eventually honed to near perfection, was terror. Major cities would be approached with massive forces, surrender demanded, and if refused, other nearby cities and villages that presented easy targets would be attacked. Conquered peoples were severely, brutally punished as examples, tortured, raped, beheaded, and flayed, and with their corpses, heads, and skins publicly displayed. Houses were demolished, fields sown with salt, orchards chopped down. If the target city still held out, then, and only then, would the Assyrians besiege it, an expensive and time-consuming endeavor that was used only selectively. If the siege was successful, and it often was, the city was then completely destroyed, the people tortured, mutilated, killed, or enslaved, according to the king's pleasure. The lesson was clear, surrender immediately or face complete, horrific destruction. Even surrender, of course, was only submitting to the casual brutality of Neo-Assyrian rule, as captive peoples were exploited mercilessly for their labor and their wealth. Such harshness quickly drove the newly won northern Syrian territories into revolt, one that was crushed decisively by Ashurnasirpal II in a pitched two-day battle. On the monumental inscription of the conflict, he boasts, Their men, young and old, I took prisoners. Of some I cut off their feet and hands. Of others I cut off their ears, noses, and lips. Of the young men's ears I made a heap. Of the old men's heads I made a martinet. I exposed their heads as a trophy in front of their city. The male children and the female children I burned in flames. The city I destroyed and consumed with fire. And let's remember, this is the Neo-Assyrians just warming up. They haven't really started taking things seriously yet. Following his victory over the Aramaeans and Neo-Hittites, Ashurnasirpal advanced virtually unopposed through northern Syria and into Anatolia, where he demanded tribute from the Phrygians ruling the former Hittite heartland. Reaching the shores of the Mediterranean, where he famously washed his weapons in the sea, 
Ashur Nasirpal next demanded tribute from the wealthy city-states of Phoenicia, united but still comparatively powerless under Ithobaal. He then led his armies back eastward into the Zagros Mountains to repress another revolt against Neo-Assyrian rule, this time by the Lelubi and Gutians. Everywhere they went, meaning everywhere they conquered or threatened, the Neo-Assyrians made sure to extract the most precious local resources to feed their massive war machine. Anatolian iron for weapons, Persian horses for cavalry, Lebanese cedar for construction, gold and silver for the payment of troops, and luxury goods for the Assyrian elite. Huge numbers of cattle, sheep, goats, horses, and camels were also taken. Expansion fed further expansion, conquest built on conquest, and the excess wealth flowing back into Assur was directed into servicing the greater glory of the Neo-Assyrian rulers. It was Ashur Nasirpal II, in the wake of his early victories, who decided that a new, larger capital was needed to manage his rapidly growing empire. At Kalhu, centrally placed within the Assyrian heartland, but some distance from the traditional power centers of Assur and Nineveh, Ashur Nasirpal II spent the next 15 years building his new capital of Nimrud. The royal palace was constructed to his own exacting standards, using captive labor and plundered wealth from his campaigns, and was finally completed in 865 BC. Its imposing facade featured entrances flanked by colossal human-headed winged lions and bulls, called Lamassu, and walls extensively decorated with reliefs carved in alabaster. The reliefs portray the king surrounded by gods and protective spirits, or engaged in lion hunting, campaigning, or receiving the tribute of conquered peoples. The scenes are overlaid with inscribed text, testifying to the king's lineage, his many victories, the boundaries of his empire, and his foundation of Nimrud, which would remain the Assyrian capital for the next 150 years. Along with his new capital, Ashur Paul II also built a number of citadels and fortresses at strategic locations, including one named Kar Ashur Paul, anybody surprised? At the point where the Tigris enters Mesopotamia. Ashur Paul also initiated changes in several aspects of imperial rule. Administratively, he dispensed with the ancient Near Eastern tradition of ruling through vassal kings, and appointed Assyrian military governors over all conquered territories. Militarily, he was the first Near Eastern ruler to integrate heavy and light cavalry, as opposed to horse-driven chariots, into his military forces, a fact testified to in several palace reliefs from Nimrud. At this early stage, riders had no spurs, saddles, saddlecloths, or stirrups. Cavalry acted in pairs, with the reins of the mounted archer controlled by his neighbor's hand. Later, with the use of saddlecloths as primitive saddles, each mounted archer was able to control his own horse. After 24 years spent reconquering the former territories of the Middle Assyrian Empire and forging a powerful militaristic terror state, Ashur Nasirpal II finally died in 859 BC. His son and heir, Shalmaneser III, began his reign by signing a peace treaty with Nabu Apla Idini, king of Babylonia. Was this because he wanted all the people of the Near East to, you know, live in peace and harmony and maybe start up a co-op selling handmade Neo-Assyrian string art? Sadly, no. It was, you guessed it, 
to secure his southern flank, while he and his army of 50,000 soldiers made a committed push southwestward into the Aramean heartland. To their credit, upon hearing the news, the new bite-sized Iron Age mini-kingdoms of Syria and Canaan did not immediately wet themselves and start sprinting for the sea, which would have been entirely defensible behavior, by the way. No, instead, they did something fairly remarkable. They actually banded together in defiance of the Neo-Assyrian threat, and met it head-on at the city of Karkar on the Orontes River. In his own words, Shalmaneser, after crossing the Tigris and Euphrates, entering the land of Aram, and receiving the submission and tribute of the ancient Syrian city of Aleppo, was confronted on the Orontes with... 1,200 chariots, 1,200 cavalry, and 20,000 troops of Hadad-Azer of Damascus, 700 chariots, 700 cavalry, and 10,000 troops of Erhuleni the Hamathite, and 2,000 chariots and 10,000 troops of Ahab the Israelite. This force was joined by 20,000 troops from Ammon and the other Canaanite kingdoms, including 500 from Byblos. Perhaps more remarkably, the defensive coalition was augmented by 1,000 Egyptian soldiers dispatched by the pharaoh Osorkon II, as well as 1,000 Arabian troops on camelback, the first such mention in the historical record. Egypt's long-standing ties to Byblos aside, for both southern kingdoms it was probably more a case of, let's fight them up there so we don't end up fighting them down here. Regardless of the motivations, the result was a massive and unprecedented alliance, squaring off in possibly the largest battle fought in the history of the world to date. Perhaps the only thing more surprising than the alliance itself was that it actually succeeded in accomplishing its purpose. The conflict was hard fought and bloody, with each side suffering casualties into the tens of thousands. The Neo-Assyrians were the history writers of the time, and tended to pre-record every engagement, regardless of the outcome, as a glorious victory for their king. But the fact is that the Neo-Assyrian push southwestward was halted at the Battle of Karkar. Over the next decade, Shalmaneser would campaign again and again in the region, confronting Hadad-Azer and various allied forces six more times, and on each occasion the Neo-Assyrians would be denied victory. The unstoppable empire, it seemed, had been stopped in its tracks, and no one was probably more surprised than the upstart new kingdoms of Syria and Canaan. So that's it, right? I mean, crisis averted? Give the bully a bloody nose and all that? Oh, you guys are such optimists. Unfortunately, Shalmaneser, like the Neo-Assyrian Empire itself, was just getting started. In the end, he would outlast even his father with his long reign of 34 years, a period which would see major changes across the face of the Near East. But that's all for a later episode. Next time, we really need to catch up with developments in both China and the Americas in the first millennium BC, and see how both ancient dynasties and emerging civilizations confronted the challenges of the new era. All this next time on The Ancient World. <laughs>